Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. We are continuing now in the book of Acts. For all of you, please be turning in your Bible to Acts chapter 11. We got partway through chapter 11. In chapter 11, we saw the conclusion of three weeks' worth of Peter telling the story of how God opened the door to the Gentiles as he was able to go up and preach to Cornelius and that household of Gentiles was saved. Rumor got back to Jerusalem. They were kind of figuring out what's going on here. There was people confused about it, the circumcision, another way of saying devout Jews who followed all the Jewish rituals. They weren't sure this was kosher. And yet in all of this, as Peter brought forth his defense, he said, they have the same Holy Ghost we got. And there's evidence of it. And the evidence of it really comes in in verse 17 of chapter 11. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when he believed on the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. <laughs> they became silent, which is to say they stopped arguing against God and got on board with what God was doing, that he was bringing sinners to church, and they were getting saved. And this is the story even to this many days. And so we continue on at verse 19 now. Now... After those were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Those who were scattered after the persecution. If you remember back in chapter 8 at verse 1, immediately following the stoning of Stephen, the deacon, who witnessed to the Sanhedrin, and for his witness of Jesus Christ, they stoned him to death. We read in chapter 8 of Acts, verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution rose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so, from chapter 8, verse 1, now here to chapter uh, 11 verse 19 is about 10 years and it goes quick when you're reading chapter 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 in your bible but we've seen so many events with the gospel going out to samaria going to the ethiopian going uh, abroad to caesarea and joppa and all the different things that are going on and finally we see there as i just read in acts the holy spirit is trying to starting to pull all this together tie it all together, all these different groups that are out there. And it, it says to us, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. That is on the northern coast of Africa in what is modern-day Libya now, so way beyond even Egypt on your maps, to Phoenicia and Cyprus this is an island out in the Mediterranean, and Antioch, which we're going to talk about a little bit in detail here, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. 
And you see, this is a pattern that we saw in the early church. In fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles to be witnesses, the first time we see this, in Acts chapter 10, at verse 5 and 6, we read, These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter into a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we see that repeated again in Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus is with his disciples. They're out of town. They're in Tyre and Sidon up on the coast of the Mediterranean. And a Canaanite woman comes and asks Jesus to heal his daughter. And he says, wait, 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 I can't do that. I've been sent to the Jews. And it's not good that that the, that the bread that God brought to the Jews should be given to the Gentiles. And she answers, even the puppies get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And he answers, I have not found such faith. Your daughter is healed. And so Jesus was sent to the Jews. He would say to the woman at the well when he was talking with her in Samaria that salvation is of the Jews. Okay, you worship what you don't know, but we worship the Father, and we must worship Him in spirit and truth. The time is now coming and is that we should worship Him in spirit and truth. But the, truly, the gospel, the good news, was given to the world through the Jews. You know, this. it started 2,000 years before Christ, when God was just starting to work with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then through time, Joseph and Moses, and on down into all of the, uh, the story, the history of the Jews, God had given him promises of Messiah, the deliverer of not only Israel, but a light to the Gentiles. And so, it was the practice in the early church, these first 10 years, pr primarily to go to Jews first. Now, that, that, that's binding, that's applicable to you and I. Um, we realize that outside of the Bible, outside of Judaism, outside of Jesus Christ, Son of God, born a Jew, there is no other name amongst men by which we must be saved. We have to enter in through that gate that God opened through Judaism. Now, over history and over time, we've seen divisions set up with the Jews. We're reading about it right here, you know, in, in the book of Acts 2,000 years ago. But know this, that God is not done with Israel. You can read a lot about that. I highly recommend Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 to get a really good synopsis of what God is doing in the world today while He's put the church front and center. And it's our job. It's our responsibility to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. That falls on the church, and yet God says He's not done with Israel. There's still a plan for Israel. In this situation, now they're actually getting the old wine, and they're putting it into the new wine skins, as Jesus would prophesy, as He told us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you shall receive power to be my witnesses, yes, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which that term literally is a, a time stamp, which is to stay as long as the earth keeps spinning, 
this gospel is going to go forward. It, it includes us in this room this morning, the ends of the earth. And so here we see this gospel spreading, but it's kind of having a ricochet effect now. These people are going out to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, to Antioch. It says in verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, that's up in the northern coast of uh, the Mediterranean near Turkey, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist, preaching the Lord Jesus. If you've been with us, you probably know what a Hellenist is. That's somebody who has a Grecian or Greek culture. Even though the Roman Empire ruled the world at this time, the culture was Greek. And even the pantheon of, of gods and goddesses and all that, the Greek or Roman gods, uh, they were kind of overseeing all. The language was Koine, Greek, throughout the world. The scriptures that we're reading were written in Greek. Greek was the dominant culture of the world, even though the Romans ran the world, okay? And so these Hellenists, these are people that come from a, a Grecian worldview. But what's happening is these guys that are now scattered all across the world are Christians, and now they're coming back and telling people back home about Jesus. In world missions, one of the things I think is interesting is that for 200 years, America was the number one leader in sending out missionaries to the world, to the lost, to the unreached people groups. But we fell off that mantle a couple decades ago. You know which country sends out the most missionaries now? South Korea. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and a lot of them are coming here and, we, you know, we need them. Please, Lord, send us missionaries, right? And, and, and so this is kind of funny, this ricochet effect that's going on. Well, it says here that they were in Antioch. Just a little bit of homework on Antioch, okay? It's actually known as Antioch of Syria because back in these days, there were 16 cities named Antioch. This came about when Alexander the Great died. He, he broke up his kingdom into four pieces and one of the and gave it to each of his generals, each of his commanders. They got a piece. In the northwest uh, area, Seleucus became the ruler of that part of the world. Seleucus' father was named Antioch. So when he went around and started establishing cities, he kept naming all his cities after his dad. And so to distinguish which Antioch we're talking about, this is Antioch of Syria. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. If you were to look at a map of the Mediterranean Ocean and go all the way to the east side of the Mediterranean Ocean and up to where it kind of makes the corner of a rectangle, if you want to say that, that's where Antioch set. It's in modern-day Turkey. It's about 15 miles inland on the Orontes River. Now, it was a major city in the Roman Empire, about 500,000, half million population in these days we're reading about. It was spectacular. It had a four-mile marble-lined or paved street that ran through the middle of it with colonnades that would be lit at night, like street lights. And it was famous for being a principal trade center in the Roman Empire. It was at this gap, this place between Europe and Asia, and everything passed through. So major commerce in that area. You could say of the major cities in the Roman Empire in that day, Rome was the seat of power. Jerusalem, for uh, Judaism and Christianity, was certainly the seat of religion. Alexandria, 
on the north coast of Africa and Egypt. That would have been the center of intellect and learning. Athens was the center of philosophy. Antioch was the center of commerce. And their number one product? Immorality. They, again, they were, uh, there was a, a temple there, the ta- Temple of Daphne. And the Temple of Daphne was world famous. And of course, all these business people traveling the world would end up there. And they would go to the Temple of Daphne to worship. The Temple of Daphne was dedicated to worship to Apollo. And because of the, the nature of the area on the Orontes River, it, it was full of springs and lush and gardens. And their form of worshiping Apollo there was the idea that all the nymphs and naiads, which are like sub-gods in the Greek pantheon, they would minister to the people coming to worship Apollo. But what the main job of the nymphs and the naiads, a nymph is a female and a naiad is a male little weird spirit, right, or whatever. What their duty was, was to bring children to adulthood. So their worship was revulsive, disgusting. It was child stuff. And this is what would happen in Antioch and Daphne. A lot of child trafficking and all the wickedness that would go with that. In fact, the byword of this day that we're reading about, one of the words that would go around uh, was... Daphnici mores, or the morality of Daphne. And that morality was moral depravity and degenerate living. In fact, the Roman poet, satirist, by the name of Juvenile, writing about Antioch's influence in the Roman Empire, this is what he said, the sewage of the Syrian Orontes has long been discharged into the Tiber which was the major ro- river that ran through Rome. Um, and so the, the, the influence of Antioch was perverted and pervasive. It was the second wickedest city in the Roman Empire, but all streets seem to have come through Antioch. So here we are in Antioch, okay? Um, and they're preaching. Now all these People that have gone out, received Jesus, they're in Phoenicia, they're in Cyprus, wherever. Now they're coming back and they're telling people about Jesus. And they're they're telling the Gentiles, they're telling the Greeks. These people have no background in Judaism, the scriptures, they don't know anything about Messiah. And now these Christians, brand new, born again, don't know better. And they're just telling everybody, okay, in this wicked, wicked city. And it says, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And I just like this, you know, as wicked, as dark, as depraved, as perverted as that community was, the hand of the Lord was with them. You can say Jesus was getting the upper hand. And this is something that we need to know. We just said we fight from victory. Jesus has already won the battle. All we have to do is suit up and get on the field. And Jesus does the work, okay? And so that's what's happening here. It's really cool. Verse 22, Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. You remember Barnabas? I love Barnabas, right? We first met him in Acts chapter 4, 36 through 37. He was very generous 
And he was giving. He wasn't actually from Jerusalem, but he sold all his property and gave it to the church, to those in need. And we saw that he was generous and he was very encouraging. Actually, his name is Jose, Jose's, but they nicknamed him. The apostles started calling him Barnabas or Barney. Barnabas means son of encouragement because this guy was encouraging everywhere he went. Generous, encouraging. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I was listening on the radio, I think, yesterday talking about uh, role models in society. And it was it, the, the story had to do with a business. And on the interviews, they would interview people coming in and they would ask people, who's your role model? It was kind of one of the tests to see what, what kind of person you are, what are your targets, what are your goals in life. One of the sad things about it was the current generation that we're living in, very few people have a role model. The media, the 24-hour news cycle, the everybody knows everything about everybody's dirt. There are no more George Washingtons or Abraham Lincolns or, 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 or whatever that you would look up to, and people are having a hard time saying, Who's my role model? Who do I follow after? And as I'm listening to that on the radio, I'm thinking, well, what if they asked me, who's my role model? My first thought was, well, Jesus. That's who I want to be like. I want to be like Jesus. And I thought a little bit more, and I thought, well, in the Old Testament, it's Caleb. I just love Caleb, right? At 80 years old, he give me the mountain where those giants dwell. I'm not done yet. I'm stronger than I've ever been. And I, I want to be a Caleb, man. I just want to keep going and going and going. And in the New Testament, if I had a role model, it would be Barnabas. Man, if I could only be an encourager. Man, if I could only be the things that we're going to see about Barnabas here. Um, and one of the things I noticed as I was pondering and praying through all that and getting ready for this morning's message, I looked and I thought, all of my role models, Jesus, Caleb, Barnabas, they're all seconds. They're all servants. They all serve someone higher than them, right? Of course, Barnabas, we're going to see serving the church, serving so many people. We often call or talk about in the Bible, Paul and Barnabas. But you know, if you start reading in these chapters, it's going to be a chapter more before we see that title switch. Barnabas was the leader, but then Paul took over. But we see Barnabas just happy to be a servant, happy to be second. I don't, I don't need to be the leader. I'll be the assistant. Caleb, same thing with Joshua, and Jesus, who would say, I don't do anything that the Father doesn't say. I'm just here to serve God, right? And I just love that. That's his heart of Barnabas. Look how he's described. Um, then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. You know, it's interesting, if we go back to when the... the um, what do we call those, the deacons that were selected out to serve the tables to the Hellenists back in Acts chapter 6. We talked about Stephen. We talked about Philip. You remember Nicholas? Most people don't. But Nicholas was from Antioch. If you go back to Acts chapter 6 and read, it says Nicholas of Antioch. And it's like, why didn't they send Nicholas? Why did they send Barnabas? I don't know, but I, I kind of like that. I, you know, Barney's a good guy. Um, so, it says in verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them with all, that all of them with purpose of heart they, that they should continue with the Lord. That, that with purpose of heart, hey man, I'm here to build you up. I'm here to support you. I'm here to assist you. What can I do to help you in your walk, brother? Man, 
I used to remember teaching in the sixth grade to all the kids in the class. I said, what if every one of you could have maybe think of something you would really like, a dream, a goal, something you desire. Wouldn't it be great if, if you could get that goal or what is your goal and, and you just work on it really hard? I said, now what's a better value? If you pray to God, oh God, help me get this. Or God, help all my classmates help me get this. Which deal's better? To be served or, you know, to be a servant of all. And if we just flip it on our ear and say, how can I help you? How can I help you? How can I help you? And we have a whole church full of people that are trying to help people achieve their goal in life, walk on with the Lord, you know, get into heaven. What's our odds of success if everybody's pulling for each other here? And that's the kind of guy Barnabas was. It says uh, he encouraged them with purpose of heart. They should continue with the Lord. Verse 24, and I love this description, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and the great many people were added to the Lord. Amen. Isn't it a breath of fresh air when a Barnabas walks in the room? You know, and everybody's like, man, I want to be on that team. That's, that's the happening group. I, I want to go there, you know. And it, I love this, for he was good. Uh, Lloyd Farrar and I, we've had an ongoing skirmish for how long have I known you, Lloyd? 20-something years, I don't know. But I always, I, you know, you know, there was that thing that used to go around. It's like, oh, it's, it's good. It's all good. I'm good. And every time Lloyd would come up to me, hey, Mike, how you doing? I'd say, I'm good. And then what would Lloyd say? What would Lloyd say? There are none good, not any. <laughs> and I'd always come back, uh, Barnabas was, the Bible says right here, Barnabas was good. <laughs> of course, you understand, Barney is after Christ, A.D., right? As he's born again, he's a new creature in Christ. He's given a new name. His name was Jose, but everybody said, you're Barney. You're good. You're in Christ. And so I just love that. But this is his reputation. Wouldn't you love that reputation if I said, uh, you know, so-and-so, they sit in the seventh pew back on the left-hand side, and you're like, I'm not sure who they are. And I said, oh, you know them. They're good. They're full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And you go, oh, that one. Wouldn't that be a way to be recognized amongst our peers if we could say, man, he's good, full of the Holy Spirit, faith, man, that's the guy. So he does, and, and, and the net result, a great many people were added. Hallelujah. Verse 26, and when he had, uh, then, oh, verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. If you remember, in the intervening 10 years, Barnabas was the one who actually brought Saul of Tarsus from Damascus up to Jerusalem. Nobody wanted to touch Saul. He was bad news. And Barney says, wait a minute, he's a good guy. He's been born again. I vouch for him. And Barney was the one who stepped in the gap there and brought Saul, who becomes Paul, to the council in Jerusalem. Now there's an opportunity. There's a need. We need some help. We need some who do we want to get? I know. Let's get Saul. Saul of Tarsus. That guy's rad. That guy's on fire. That guy's got no filter. We need Saul. So Barnabas departed to Tarsus. That's where Saul has been hanging out after he went off from Damascus to Egypt and back to Damascus and up to Jerusalem. He went to Tarsus, his home 
place, and he's been there these many years ministering. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and, when, and that word to seek him means he really had to work to look for him and to find him, right? It wasn't just like, oh, I just put his name in on GPS and I'll go to his front door. It didn't work that way in those days, and especially somebody like Saul, because Saul was a moving target. The guy never sat still. Where's Saul? I know, last I know, he went to this village. You get to that village? I don't know. He left a couple days ago. I went to this village. Where'd he go? You know, and it's like, did you check in the jail? He's probably in the jail, but he was somebody that was hard to find. Anyways, when he had found him, he brought him to <coughs> Antioch, and if you're reading this, in the first century, if you're reading this as somebody in the church, as you're reading this as Luke has recorded it and written it down and it's now being spread throughout the church, you're seeing, wow, Antioch, just the filthy sewage, just source that flows into the world. And Saul, rabbi of rabbis, Jew of Jews, talk about holier than thou, Pharisee of the Pharisees, what an interesting combination. Nevertheless, Barnabas says, I think that'll work. So he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for the whole year, they assembled with the church, that word for assembled, ecclesia, which is where we get the word church. They assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's something I highlighted and put a little asterisk. Up till now, Christians were called a lot of things. Now, this calling Christians Christians wasn't necessarily a positive thing when the label first applied to them. If we go back through the books of Acts, we'll see that in Acts chapter 1, uh, they were referred to as disciples in 115. In, in chapter 9, we saw that they were called saints. In chapter 5, again, they were called believers. In chapter 6, they were called brothers. Uh, in chapter 5, they were witnesses. In chapter 9, again, they were followers of the way. And in chapter 24, they're also going to be known as Nazarenes. But here in Antioch, for the first time in history, they were called Christians. Now, Christians you can, is a combination of Christ and I-A-N. S in the plural. In Latin, the ending I-A-N would mean of the party of or from, and uh, like an American, a Canadian, you're from this place. This is how you were identified by others. That's where you came from. So the word Christian, Christian was the party of Jesus people, or in a more common vernacular, if we were to say it kind of in this, these days, you might say Jesusites or even Jesus people, literally Jesus people. And as you know anything from the, the history of the Calvary Chapel movement, we came out of a history in America in the 70s where the Holy Spirit was just busting out everywhere. Revival was going on and a lot of people were nicknamed or known as Jesus people. Now, that wasn't something they called themselves. That's the thing that like Newsweek and Life magazine and, and people were calling, oh, those Jesus people. They're all like Jesus. Look, they even got long hair. They wear robes. They're all Jesus people. And it wasn't a positive thing. And yet, this is what was going on in Antioch. They would label people. You can imagine this town 
of commerce and, and corruption and, and, and whatever, everybody got tagged. Everybody got a label. And the label Jesus people or Christian was thrown on them first in Antioch. In this cesspool of all kinds of world religion, culture, and whatnot, if you were going around in Antioch, they go, oh, 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 there goes Mike. He's one of them Christians, followers of Christ. Now, you do understand Christ is from Christos, the Greek word for anointed. The, the Hebrew for anointed is Mashiach or Messiah. And so literally, when you're calling somebody a Christian, you're saying they're the anointed people. They're the ones who have been blessed with the Holy Spirit. And like Barnabas, it should show. You should be good, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And people will go, man, I'm glad the Christians are in town. Well, this is a beautiful thing. So the Word of God is spreading, verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And so they're making that 300-mile trek back and forth building ties, relationships. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which had also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, Claudius Caesar was the fourth Roman Empire. We know that his reign was from 41 to 54 AD. This is one of the ways I can tell you this is about 10 years later from the beginning of the church at the day of Pentecost. Uh, about 10 years later, because it had to happen no, no sooner than 41 and maybe even 42, 43 uh, A.D. So great famine's going to come to the land, and actually secular historical documents note that this happened in the Roman Empire, that there was a lot of famine. But there's a prophet, and he comes to Antioch, and he shows them, the Holy Spirit told them there's going to be a famine. And you're like, how does that work? I don't know how that works. I don't know. I was just reading in my regular devotions in the morning. I'm in the book of Genesis, and I just read about Joseph when he got thrown into jail. And uh, the Pharaoh had this dream. He couldn't figure it out. And they said, oh, there's this guy in jail. And he figured out what the baker was up to and what the butler was up to. Call him in. And the dream was of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And Joseph was able to tell him, there's a famine coming. You need to save some some supplies for during those times. And because he was right, because the Holy Spirit had shown him this thing, when it all came to pass, he was promoted to second in charge of the greatest empire in the world of its day. Well, how does that happen? It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's many manifestations where the Holy Spirit can show us things that maybe aren't known by common knowledge. It's a gift of knowledge. And it's something that sometimes the Holy Spirit can use if it's uh, something that He wants the world to know, right? How am I going to get it out? Well, let's go find a guy. Who should we get to find this? I don't know. How about Agabus? Oh, yeah, we'll get Agabus. I find it funny. There's no, this is a mic thing right here. It has nothing to do with anything that you're supposed to remember right now. But I'm like, who is this Agabus? We're going to possibly, we don't, you can't put a super like handcuffs together, but you can certainly put a thread together that he's going to show up in chapter 21 again and warn Paul not to go to Jerusalem because they, they, he took his belt and he tied it around his waist. And he goes, you're going to be bound. And, 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 and Paul says, uh, none of these things move me. I'm going anyways. That was Agabus in chapter 21. Same Agabus or not, I don't know. But in this one, it had to do with famine. And I always like to look up funny little things like, what's Agabus's name mean? And it doesn't say that anywhere in here except that it comes from a, a Hebrew word, root word which talks about grasshoppers. And so somehow this guy, the grasshopper, knew famine was coming. 
You don't have to laugh. You can boo. Just write it down and go, man, that guy's whack. But that's what happens in my head when I study the Bible. I look at this stuff and I go, does that mean anything? I don't know. When you get to heaven, ask Agabus. What's the deal with that? Anyways, <laughs> verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So they purposed, they said, you know what? There's a famine coming. Our brothers and sisters in the Lord are in need. Let's take a collection and send something over to help them out, having all things in common. The word is koinonia, okay? It's that word where we all share and share alike. When somebody has a need, we meet their need, when, and, and vice versa. That's what the Hands of Grace ministry is all about. That's what the sign-up sheet that went around for D.C., that if, he, if there's a need in the church, and then he's got some phone numbers he can call. You can say, no, I'm busy right now, but if you're interested in being part of helping one another and being used, it's an opportunity for a Hands of Grace ministry. Um, in 1 Corinthians, this is a different famine, but it's the same concept. This famine happened a little bit later during the book of Acts. But in, I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll read it verse 1, and I'll pick a couple pieces out of this to not belabor it. But it says in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and that the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And so it goes on to say in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, verse 6, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, that's the law of sowing and reaping, right? You can't outgive God and you sow two kernels of corn, how much food are you going to think you're going to have next year? You sow 2,000 kernels of corn, how much food do you think you're going to have next year? It's almost common sense. Well, that is, that's with all things that we give. In verse 7, it says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, So not grudgingly, nor of necessity. You don't have to do it. But God loves a cheerful giver. You're going to get repaid back on what you give, so why not go for it? But don't do it because, oh man, it's all legalistic and the church is going to look down on me if I don't do it. You know, this is one of the reasons we pass the offering bags in church. Not so that you can see if your neighbor gave or not. If you're paying any attention, I never put anything in the offering bags. <gasps> Scandal. It comes out of our check. We write, it's, the first, it's the first check we write every month, okay? It comes off the top. I don't know what God's going to give, but I'm going to make sure I give that. And then some on top of that, gifts and offerings, right? We, we, we purpose to give 10%, Cheryl and I. This is not that you have to. Again, there's no grudging here. There's no obligation here. But the reason we pass the bags is because we have learned over the years, that you cannot outgive God. And I don't know how it works, but I can tell you it works. That God will not be a debtor to any man, and that you can't outgive Him. And that when you start living life, when the first thing you do is give, as our Father in heaven so loved the world and gave, 
His only Son, that Christ, though He was rich, became poor for our sakes. When you give, it says in the Proverbs that he who casts his bread on the waters will not go hungry. God works all that out. And so we pass the bag so that you, especially as family with your kids sitting next to you, can see this is an act of worship. It's an opportunity to give. It's a place where we get to give. We get to be like our Father who is in heaven. Uh, Abba, Father, our Daddy. And He's a generous God. I want to be generous. Barnabas is my role model. I want to be generous. I want to live out what the Bible shows me and, and, and reap the benefits. Just I, didn't, I don't think I ever brought this forward, but you know we were supporting you know, Yad Hashmanah. I don't know if you... Uh, hash, yeah, Hashmanah. Uh, the Messianic Jewish Moshad in Israel that is housing refugees from October 7th. You remember we were doing this, we collected a bunch of money. Do you know that this church collected and sent right around, not exact dollars and cents, but $2,500 to them? That was back in December, right? And this is just, this is generous. That's not your tithing, that's not your regular giving to the contribution of the ongoing work of the church and the lights and electricity, the children's ministry, the outreaches and all that. This is a gift. This is an offering above and beyond, and it's an opportunity for you to be generous, right? Everybody goes, do I have to give 10%? I'm like, no, you don't have to give whatever. You give as you purpose in your heart. 10% is just easy. It's simple math. We see it in the Bible. We do it. It's not a legalistic thing, but it's a nice way of doing it. But let me just throw this out at you. Wouldn't it be a wonderful goal in life to say, instead of giving 10%, I want to give 90% and live on 10%. I, I want to become so blessed in what I'm able to contribute to the world that I'm just recognized for my generosity. What a beautiful thing to do. Next Sunday, potato bar fun, fundraiser, right? Right after church, we all get up, we go on up there, we buy a potato, we eat it. They're going to give you some cookies too. But, you know, you can bring a dollar and they'll give you a potato but it's an opportunity. That's why we do it. We get to fellowship with all the other churches. We get to enjoy what God is doing through Christian ed on the school campuses. Every time the school is open, Jesus is in the house, and you get to be, you get to be a part of it. It's an opportunity to give to that. Now, I'm not trying to be a salesman here for you, but Paul says, I don't, I don't want this that, it, that it's for me. It's that it would accrue to your account. When you learn the blessing of giving, you all of a sudden will be encouraging other people. Maybe they're struggling in life. Maybe you're in a situation you don't have much. That's okay. Just what's 10% of what you got going to do anyways? I mean, at the end of the day, you probably spend that and squander it, and you couldn't even account for it in most people's situations. And so just start your, your week, your month, your day giving to God. Anyways, this is what's going on. Um, Verse 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Wow. Talk about trusting them. Let's just put a whole bunch of money in a couple boxes and we'll give it to these guys and they'll travel halfway around the world and take it to the people that need it. Can we trust them with that? You sure can. You can put it in the bank. If it's Barnabas, you betcha. And Saul? 
Yeah, I mean, he might have been an adversary of the church, but that guy's like rigid. He's, he's, he's upright, you know. Chapter 12. This is going to go fast. I'm supposed to be done right now at 11.25. And i got a chapter I've got to do. So put your fast ears on. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Again, this is A.D. 43. It's documented in history. It's about now getting around 12 years after Pentecost. So the church has been around. They're growing. They're having influence. And actually, in this case, it's about the 10th anniversary of Jesus' crucifixion, right? Do you know what we do on the anniversary of Jesus' crucifixion? What do we do as a church? Anybody? That's Easter. That's Easter. That's what we celebrate every year, Easter, okay? So here's the 10th anniversary. Uh, So Herod stretches out his hand to harass the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Okay, John the apostle, James the apostle, whacked off his head. Verse 3, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to further seize Peter also. Wow, people love it, the Jews, the Jews that hate these Christians, they love it that I'm actually killing people. What kind of religion loves it when people get killed? Sadly, we're living in a world with many of them. Um, It's it's a very, very difficult, sad thing to see. Um, I'm going to take this here. I I pulled this off the internet. This is the Esther Project. You can look up a lot of them. Historical Christian persecution statistics. More than 70 million Christians have been martyred in the course of history. More than half were martyred in the 20th century. That's more than 35 million martyred just in the last century under communist and fascist governments. This is according to the Gordon Cornwell Resource Group. Also, they reported in the 21st century, roughly 100,000 to 160,000 Christians were killed each year. And roughly 1,093,000 Christians were martyred worldwide between 2000 and 2010. That's according to the World Christian Database. The modern global persecution statistics, 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month according to Open Doors. Also, they report 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every month, and 772 forms of violence, that means beatings, kidnappings, rapes, arrests, are committed against Christians every month. It goes on, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or neighbors because of their faith. That's according to the U.S. Department of State. And at least 7,100 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons in 2015, and that was up 4,344 from 2014. You can see some of these numbers are dated. The numbers are going up. The persecution is getting more and more severe. Ten countries with the worst record, starting with the worst first, North Korea, has killed 700,000 Christians since it became a nation, plus millions and millions more in labor camps. Then the list goes, North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, and Tria. Terrible countries to be if you're a Christian. You will be killed if you're a Christian there. If you're a Barnabas, if you're good, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, it's going to show and they're going to take you out, like they did James, the brother of John. In China, not even on this list, it's not even a top 10, but China has killed 3,000 Christians 
uh, just in the area since 2000. Now, that's not that many deaths, but how many have been taken and put in prisons and work camps? That's just off the charts. Burma, Myanmar, uh, has killed at least 10,000 uh, in the last uh, couple decades, just rampant. And India, persecution against Christians is up 20% over last year. And they have political parties that are just trying to run Christians out of town, off out of the country. They're trying to make it part of their constitution, like many of these other states. And so there's real Christian persecution going on in the world. In Hebrews 13, 3, we read that we are to um, remember the prisoners as if we were chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And as a body, a finger, a toe, an eyelash, an ear, whatever, there's another part of our body in a prison somewhere, not just a part, a lot of Christians around the world, and we need to be praying for these Christians. In fact, if you'll pray with me right now, Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are free. We sit here and assemble and worship freely. Help us to not take that for granted. Help us to use it to pray, send up prayers to you that you would rescue and you would save these people in need and that, Lord, you would have your way. But I pray mostly that you would be with them in their time of need. And for many of these, we know they're standing right on the front step of eternity. I pray that you would just usher some of those in with joy and thanksgiving, as you did Stephen uh, in the book of Acts. We just thank you now, Lord, for hearing our prayers. Help us to be faithful in this, in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay, so look what happens when you pray. Verse 5, or I'm sorry, uh, verse 3. Uh, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to further seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Passover, first fruits, this is Easter, 10 years later. Anniversary. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads or four tetrads. Each one is a group of four soldiers and they would work in shifts. So when he arrested, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads. So you'd have uh, six hours and then the next squad would come and four more guys would watch him of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Let's see what happens when people pray. Verse 6, and when, he, and when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. You ain't going nowhere. You're actually handcuffed to these guys on the floor, and there's guys at the door guarding it. Now behold. You know when it says, now behold, in the Bible, you want to check it out. An angel of the Lord stood by him, and the light shone in the prison and struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. This is miraculous. Then the angel said, Gird yourselves and tie your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and he did not know what was done by the angel. But by the angel, he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I must be dreaming. Right? When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gates and that led to the city, which opened them on their own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. God closed the eyes of these guards and opened the shackles and had to kick Peter in the side. Get up! We need to go now, 
right? And this all happens. And, and I can attest, we've witnessed that. Cheryl and I, on many mission trips, have seen God close the eyes. I remember going into Peru and bringing in literally just duffel sacks and duffel sacks full of vitamins. She worked for Safeway Vons at the time. She let it known that we were going on a mission trip, and they said, oh, we can give you some vitamins. How many pallets would you like? And we're like, we don't know how to get pallets down, but we put as much as we could possibly schlep through the airport. But when we came to the security check, it's like red light, green light. You hit a green light, you're free. We're watching, everybody's hitting green light, green light, green light. We hit, it's red light. We're like, oh boy. So we started with the first suitcases first with our clothing. Then the second suitcases, which had all the vitamins, but we put like children's clothes on top of the vitamins. And as they open package and package, and next, they open up one of them and go, oh no, this is it, right? And they opened it up, and then all of a sudden they said, you can go. And we walked right through and carried all the vitamins in. It's not that we were trying to smuggle. There was nothing bad about the vitamins. But had we done that, in fact, another year I was going to Peru, and I had a vacuum cleaner. And they detained me. I almost missed my plane because I didn't declare the vacuum cleaner on my ticket. We were going to give it to the ministry down there. A vacuum cleaner, right? So anyways, God can shut guys' eyes. And that, this is happening right here. Verse 11, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, I know for certain that the angel has sent his angel, and he's delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. This is John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And many believe this is quite possibly the house where the disciples met in the upper room for the Last Supper. Anyways, Peter knows this is where the church hangs out. This is where they're gathering. Now that I'm free and I'm on the streets, walking down the streets tonight, I'll go there. Okay? And 13, and Peter has knocked on the door of the gate. A girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized P Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. It's kind of comical. It's kind of funny, really. Like, we're inside and we're praying, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, help Peter, help Peter. Knock, knock, knock. Rhoda, can you get that? Okay. <laughs> it's Peter. <laughs> it's Peter, right? And she goes and tells everybody, but she doesn't open the door, and he's still stuck in the street. Guards are swarming the street, figuring out where'd Peter go. He's stuck outside, and she's like kind of wigging out. Verse 15, but they said to her, you're beside yourself. She kept insisting that it was so, so they said, it's his angel. It's not really him. It's just a figment of your imagination, right? A spirit. Verse 16, now Peter continued knocking. What does Jesus say? Ask, seek, knock, and don't stop knocking till you get an answer. And Peter's like, knock, 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 knock. I need in. Continue knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. I can't believe it's true. It's really you. But motioning them with his hand, shh, shh, keep quiet, guys. You know, they're out looking for me. Let's get inside. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, Go, tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now, this is a different James, not the one that Herod just beheaded, but this is... Um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James in your Bible. Go tell James. He's one of the pillars of the church. Let him know I'm out. I'm free. Verse 18, then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. I, I'll bet, right? What's going on here, right? And, and, when, and look what happens. But when Herod had searched for him and found nothing, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. No wonder there's a stir. 
it was Roman law in those days that a guard who was taking care of a prisoner, if the prisoner escaped, whatever was going to happen to that prisoner, that would happen to the guard. We saw it like in Paul um, and Silas when they're in Philippi and the Philippian jailer's about to kill himself. Not because Paul and Silas, they didn't have a death penalty, but other people in the prison who escaped might have. But anyways, these guys knew under Roman law we could die. But Herod wasn't a Roman governor. Herod, he was a, <laughs> he was a grandson of Herod the Great, a nephew of Herod the First. He, was, uh, he had another son, Herod, who's going to be seen in the back of the book of Acts, all arch enemies of Jesus Christ, wicked and evil people. And um, so now Herod uh, decides he's going to kill them. He's not the Roman authority, but he's going to kill them anyways because, hey, made everybody happy when we killed James. Let's kill a bunch more. And so now they killed the Roman soldiers. Maybe that'll make them happy, right? It's just, it's so sad and so wicked. And so you know this, and again, I'm supposed to have been done a while ago, so I got to make this fast. But don't, don't consider it strange, this fiery trial which you are about to encounter. I know that's 2,000 years old, but it's, it's for today, team. We're in a world that hates God, hates Jesus, hates Christians, okay? And I'm not t that's not a newsflash. We know that. I just read statistics. And when it comes our way, don't be so surprised, right? In all of this, <laughs> we see what's happening. Uh, but Herod now, he's, he wants to kill somebody, okay? And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So Peter got out of town. He went back up to Caesarea. We've seen that earlier in the book of Acts. Verse 20, and worship team, skedaddle on up here. I'm about ready to actually stop. <clears throat> Verse 20, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, these are Gentiles. We talked about the Canaanite woman from Tyre. Jesus had that encounter with her. Uh, can't we at least get the crumbs that fall off the table? Well, Tyre and Sidon are on the seacoast, so they're ports of commerce, but they don't have a lot of agriculture. All their wheat and all their grain came from Israel, and Herod is in charge of that part of Israel. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him one of one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, and they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So the people of Tyre and Sidon, Herod doesn't like them. Herod's making life miserable for him. But these people find out his personal aide, Blastus, will get him to call on Herod and have Herod come and have a meeting with us. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal people apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to him. This set day would have been a celebration of Claudius Caesar, kind of a, a, a big day. They would gather everybody, and now Herod's going to, in this, this wonderful apparel, according to Josephus, the historian, they said his gown or his robe was made of like uh, sewn silver, and the light just shined off it that it just radically reflected and glowed. And as he's up there, he gives this amazing uh, speech to all the people. Um, and he gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Now what they're doing is flattering him. They're buttering him up. They're trying to get on his good side. They're trying to get Herod to be nice to them. So he comes and gives a speech. Oh, you're a 
God, you're amazing, right? And he's all splendid, and he's all digging it, man. Yeah, that's me, all right, right? And this is all going on, but you do have to understand from Isaiah 42, verse 8, God writes, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. And he's taking God's glory. He's claiming to be a God. Then immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. I, I don't know if I love that or hate it. It's gross, but yeah. <laughs> Once again, Josephus said it took him five days to die, okay? He didn't just like have one big worm and just dropped at the pulpit. Um, but whatever it was ate him up from the inside out. He died. Verse 24 is a one of our progress report statements. We've had several of them. There will be several. Luke keeps intersplicing as we move from place to place, time to time in the early history of the church and the progression of Christianity. We get these progress reports, and it says in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're going to stop there. I know that in your Bible, it looks like there's one more verse till we get to the next chapter. Um, you'll have to wait till next week to get that one. It'll make sense then. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your word, Lord, and, and how you have just continued to meet us at our need, to give us opportunity to meet others in their need, to have role models that we could emulate. You, first of all, Jesus, we want to be like you. And your saints from time past to the present day. Help us look around and, and, and find people, cultivate people in our life that are a little farther ahead in their walk than we are. And just tuck up behind them and learn from them. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to be like you that we can be a witness in this dark and dying world that you love us, you died for us, and you will bring us to heaven. And so, Lord Jesus, we give you now this time, and I pray that you send each of us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news that we live in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.